Uh, as, I, as I start this morning, I, I want to invite you into uh, just a little bit of who I am, a little bit of aspects of, of my personality. And, and one of those aspects is that I love movies. Okay? I love the themes. I love the characters. Uh, I love the story. Uh, I love the way it builds to a, a particular climax. I love movies so much. Yesterday, my, my son's getting ready for his first football game, and I'm like, man, we got to watch Hoosiers. It's, it's on Netflix. And I'm, I'm watching Hoosiers, and, and my kids are looking at me. I'm weeping. I'm weeping watching Hoosiers because the story is so compelling to me. So this is a, another aspect of, of who I am. I'm a, I'm a father of five kids. I have uh, four daughters. You know, I'm less into the uh, adult-oriented movies and more into the kid-oriented movies. And so it, sometimes these movies make their way into sermons. If you're looking for more, uh, you, you know, you millennials, if you're looking for more of the, uh, the cool movies, uh, you're not going to get them from me. Uh, so it was a couple weeks ago, we, we went to go watch the live-action version of The Lion King. Now, I want to acknowledge Christians have reasons to object to this Disney classic. There's a a primary message is that our ultimate destiny becomes grass to provide food for future forms of life. But that said, there are a number of compelling themes. There are powerful portrayals of evil. A, A character that accuses and manipulates truth and uses it to destroy others. Sounds kind of familiar. There's an emphasis on the importance of the individual in the life of a community, and the importance of community in the life of an individual. There are strong female characters and strong male characters. There's a a father speaking to his son with authority and power and meaning, helping him grow in responsibility and to understand who he is. So his son's name is Simba, and, and this struggle for Simba to understand who he is or what he believes about himself is one of the more compelling aspects of the movie. If you're familiar with the story, you know that he is affirmed to be the son of the king. He is a, affirmed to be the future king. This identity carries great meaning and great responsibility. It is who he is. But a tragic incident happens, resulting in the death of his father. That, combined with accusations from the evil one, and he runs, embracing a distorted view of who he is. Time passes. He is reunited with a good friend from childhood, She tells him that things have not gone well for his community. She is looking to him for help. As she pleads with him, he denies his identity. I am no king. His response says much about how he views himself. As the conversation continues, she says, what's happened to you? You're not the Simba I remember. She wants to know, who are you? What what do you believe about yourself? You see, he was expressing that he was seeing himself through a lens of shame and self-doubt. 
He was affirming an identity that was less than or other than what his father and his community affirmed him to be. So people at First City Church, I want us to wrestle with this question this morning. Who are you? What do you believe about yourself? Because if we're honest, we're a lot like the character Simba. We have a tendency to embrace distorted views of who we are. We have a a tendency to reject who God made us to be. We don't see ourselves the way God made us to be. Well, let's think of a few examples. Sometimes we reduce identity to what we do for work. If you teach, you might say, I'm a teacher. Not not I teach, I am a teacher. For me, I say things like, I am a physical therapist, not I practice physical therapy. Of course, depending on my mood, I might change it up a little bit. If I want to sound important, I say, I am an administrator. Or if I, if I want to sound intelligent, I'll say, I am a board-certified, geriatric, specialized physical therapist. And if I, if I want to sound spiritual, I say, I'm a pastor. These, these statements tend to reduce identity to what we do for work. This extends beyond work. Maybe you, you say something like, hey, I'm, I'm a vegan. Not, a, not I eat a vegan diet, but I, I am a vegan. Or, or we had a number of men head off to a, to a Tough mutter yesterday. Pastor Chris was one of them. You know, they might come back and they, they, may, they may say, I'm a runner. Or I'm an athlete. Not I tried really hard to run, but, but I, I'm a runner. Our identity could be reduced to what we eat or how we vote politically we reduce it to a particular aspect of how we live. We also could reduce identity to an aspect of our personality, right? Some of you love the Enneagram. You guys have a big tendency to do this. Oh, man, she's a one. I, I mean, I, I'm a three, or he's a five. Or maybe, maybe you could do this with something like the Myers-Briggs, too. I'm an INTJ, or she's an ENSP. I'm not saying expressing identity is necessarily wrong. But when we identify identity primarily in what we do or in how we live, in our personality, it can be very incomplete. It can result in us seeing ourselves or others less than what God made us to be. And so there are ways we affirm distorted views of ourselves. And there are are definitely others. Statements like, I'm the weak link. I am a a loser. I'm worthless. Self-doubt and shame define us. We forget who God affirms us to be. Or we identify ourselves or others primarily through a lens of past sin. He's a drunk. She's a gossip. He's a, he's a porn addict. She's an unfit mother. I'm not saying people aren't sinners. 
This is part of who we are in our sinful nature, rebelling against a holy God. But when we label others primarily according to past sin struggles, or even current sin struggles, we are missing something about who God made us to be. So this summer at First City Church, we're working through a a sermon series focusing on the first several psalms. And this morning we come to Psalm 8, a a psalm that leads us to reflect on the question, who are you? What do you believe about yourself? In verse 4, David asks, what is man that you are mindful of him? Who am I, God? How, how should I view myself? And David will not express a reduced view of who he is or a distorted view of who he is. David, David will look to the heavens. He looks to his God and he embraces a clear sense of who God made him to be and who he is. This, this is our big idea this morning. Look to the heavens to know who you are. To better understand this big idea, we will work through Psalm 8. If you have a Bible with you, if you have a Bible app you use on your phone, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have either of those, that's okay. We will display uh, the words to passages on the screen. Let's begin with verse 1. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. We're going to pause mid-sentence. If you've been around in previous weeks, you may notice this psalm opens with a much different tone than other psalms. Those very much reflected a tone of disappointment or desperation. This one opens with great exaltation. This is a moment where David is captivated. It's kind of like the beginning of a wedding ceremony. The music is triumphant. It grabs our attention. We stand upright. Our eyes focus on the bride. She is radiant and she is beautiful. We are not thinking about ourselves. We are drawn to something else. So before David reflects on how to answer the question, what is man? He is captivated in worship of his God. He repeats, Oh, Lord, our Lord. This repetition serves as a kind of a magnifying glass. It is not so much to appeal to our intellect, but to appeal to our emotions. Feel how majestic God is. May your heart and your body be drawn up into worship of him. As David begins Psalm 8, he isn't focusing on himself. He isn't focusing on his actions or his feelings or his failures. He is focusing on his God. So the first thing we observe as we look to the heavens to know who you are, who you are, 
begins with God. Your, your identity, it doesn't begin with recognizing something internal. It begins affirming something external. Knowing who you are begins with knowing who God is. He is the source of your identity. He gives you meaning and purpose. And, and who is he? God is majestic. God is to be exalted. God is worthy of our worship. So gazing at the character and work of your God, it should shatter any sense that meaningful identity is primarily rooted in what you do. We'll talk later. Work is an aspect of our identity, but it is not the primary source of our identity. This is contrary to how many of us live. The American dream, it is all about succeeding and earning identity. We are what is known as a meritocracy. Our status, our position, our identity, it is rooted in merits. But such a belief, looking to our achievements and merits for identity and to get glory, in the aspect of Psalm 8, it is foolish. The universe is not built on your achievements. God did it. For the creation, as vast and complex as it is, for God, it was pretty easy. In fact, verse 3 says, it was, a, it was a work of his fingers. He didn't stress or strain. He didn't even break a sweat. By comparison, your work, your merits, they're pretty small. And for those who believe value in the Lord is found in accomplishments or successes, you want to know who the Lord uses? Verse 2 says, Babies, infants. Some versions actually translate that nursing babies. What does a nursing baby accomplish? What do they, they achieve? I mean, nursing babies, they are, they are cute. But, but what do they do? They eat, they sleep, they poop. They may smile here and there, but, but I think most of us know that's just a baby passing gas. I was reading a book recently d- discussing the conversion of a woman named Dorothy Day. Day is famous for providing food to the hungry and a voice to those who were suffering during the Great Depression. Early in life, Day embraced alternate faiths, leading a life of rebellion, rejecting God and his ways, However, when she became pregnant, the baby inside her convinced her of something greater. It was at this point she converted to profess faith in the Lord Jesus. God uses little babies. God uses the weak things of the world to declare his praises. As 1 Corinthians one twenty seven says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Scripture is saying what, what many value as weak. What, what many look down upon or dismiss because of lack of achievement. 
God uses for his glory. That's the type of character he has. So you don't have to prove your worth. Your identity is not earned. God blesses you and gives you meaning and purpose and identity. To see who you are clearly, to know who you are, look beyond yourself. Who you are begins with God, and it begins with a God that is majestic and worthy of worship. Before David reflects on questions about the nature of who man is, he focuses on the majesty of his God. He focuses on how awesome he is. And then after professing a right view of God, he turns in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. As David gazes at the majesty of his God, as he looks to the heavens, there could be a sense that human beings are not all that special. Or if they are special, maybe they're just special in the same way that an ant is special, or an antelope, or an aardvark. But David says, humans stand out. God is mindful of him. God cares for him. So as you look to the heavens to know who you are, you know you are cared for. David is saying, God is mindful of man. This majestic God, he cares for him in a way that is different than the rest of his creation. He is known by his God. So as David speaks to God in Psalm 139, verse 13, he says it this way. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David is saying, God cares for me in such a way. He knew me before everyone else did. He paid special attention to me. He knit me together. I am cared for. Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of Luke. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten by God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, You are of more value than many sparrows. You may think sparrows are invaluable. Five of them are sold for two pennies, but not one of them is forgotten by God. And you have more value than them. God cares for you in such a way he knows the number of hairs on your head. Or for some of us, the lack of hairs on our head. Our God cares for you. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God has formed you with his personal touch. You are his workmanship. He cares for you. For many of us, This is not an easy thing to believe. Maybe you have experienced strife in relationships 
with friends or family. They have rejected you. They sometimes look over you. You're not paid very much attention to. And so you, you, you tend to doubt that anyone cares about you. As you ponder how to answer the question, who are you? What do you believe about yourself? You know you tend to respond, I am forgotten. I am rejected. No one cares about me. I am alone. So so for those who feel forgotten, for those who feel looked over, looking to the heavens, looking to a God that cares for you, you know that is not true. You know when God looks down at all his creation, he doesn't glance over you. He doesn't reject you. He doesn't dismiss you. You are worth far more than an ant or an aardvark or an antelope. You are not forgotten. You are not alone. God is mindful of you. He sees you. He knows you. He cares for you. Let's keep reading. Verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So in answering the question, who are you? As you look to the heavens, you must include, you are crowned. This statement, you have crowned him with glory and honor. I want want us to wrestle with this this morning. See, what David is reflecting on here is uh, Genesis 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. One of the ways, as we, look to our, as we look to our God, one of the ways we identify him is king. He rules, he reigns, he is worthy of our worship, he is majestic. And so this description of you, God is saying he made humans in such a way they reflect his glory. As they look to him, they have been crowned with his image and his likeness. And so we are invited into royalty. They are not, we are not just special. We are, we are, we are made into royalty. And so this, this reality that we are royalty, it is not necessarily unique to only a biblical worldview. Other cultures affirmed this type of identity for humans. But they reserved it for individuals in high positions. The Bible, applying such royal language to all mankind, regardless of occupation, regardless of social status, regardless of how we function, regardless of family background, is different. You are royalty. Now, I'll be honest, if, if, there is a, if there's a point in this sermon I'm most burdened for, 
It is this point. I love, I love my father who is now past. But when it came to affirming identity in his kids, he did some bad things. I remember a moment uh, I was six or seven. Uh, I was playing with my dad or I thought I was playing with my dad. And as he was sitting on the couch, I stomped on his foot. He looked at, at me in anger, got up from his seat, you little. And the word he used started with a B and it was not buddy. He would take out anger and frustration with words that harmed and caused me to question who I was. Words of encouragement were few and far between. It is so hard for me to believe I am royalty and I am crowned. Maybe you suffer from physical deformities, a disability, some type of disease. Maybe you suffered a great deal of criticism as you were growing up from a parent or a coach or a caregiver. Maybe you had caregivers hit you. Maybe you had a mother or a father leave you. Maybe you were abused verbally or sexually. You do not feel good about yourself. You cannot see yourself as royalty. Indeed, as you think about how to answer the question, who are you? You you affirm things like, I am a downgrade. I am the weak link. I am such a burden. I'm a loser. As it has been said, you, you don't just believe you make mistakes. You believe you are a mistake. So, so one of the things I love to do with my kids, and I learned this from a pastor as, as our kids go to bed at night, sometimes we say something to the effect of, out of all the five-year-olds in the whole world, I am so proud to be your daddy. You are my favorite five-year-old on the whole planet. I am communicating identity in such a moment. I'm communicating how special she is to her daddy. When scripture tells you, you have been made in God's image, that you have been crowned with glory and honor, it is telling you how special you are. It's telling you, you are royalty. To many of us, criticism eats at us. It it tears us up. Sometimes it tears us up. And the worst criticism It comes as we compare ourselves to others. Here is what God wants us to know. Here is what he says in his word. To know who you are. You don't look down. To know who you are, look up. You are made in my image as I look across the timeline of history, as I look at all those faces, you are not a mistake. You are not a little word that starts with B. You are not a downgrade. You are not the weak link. You are crowned with glory and honor. You are royalty. As you look to the heavens, 
You know who you are. You know you are cared for and you know you are crowned. Last one. You are commissioned. Verses six through eight. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So one of, one of the false ways we embrace identity is to disconnect it from responsibility. As we think about how to answer the question, who are you? We might affirm phrases like, you be you. You got to be true to yourself. You got to follow your heart. You need to find yourself. Who you are is identified by wants. Who you are is identified by your desires. Who, who you are is identified by your feelings. Ultimate identity is found in you experiencing freedom, you experiencing happiness, you being able to express yourself however you choose. Responsibilities you have to others, to family or to your workplace or to the Lord, those are dismissed or deconstructed or destroyed. Part of being made in God's image is we work. We have responsibility. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is not a consequence of the fall. Work is not something you do to just make money so that you can eat and drink and have clothes and a house so you can provide for a family or express yourself however you so choose. Your commission to work is rooted in who you are made to be. Listen to to Pastor Tim Keller. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simple medicine, but food for our soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. As David looks to the heavens, he says, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. This is God's commission for you to work and have responsibility. And so it doesn't mean you consume resources however you want. It doesn't mean you conquer God's creation because you are over every other form of life. Having dominion is really about stewardship. It is looking to the heavens, knowing the creation is the work of his hands, and seeking to care and cultivate it and help it be fruitful. So when there are massive amounts of acres in the Amazon rainforest burning, as they are today, we are concerned, and we ask what we can do to make it better. When there are millions of pieces of plastic being poured into the ocean every year, and that plastic is being consumed by all sorts of life in the oceans, and there are heaps of plastic now visible from the heavens, we are concerned. And we do what we can to make it better. And when we live in a country where 3,000 babies are aborted each day, we are concerned. And we do what we can 
to make it better. And in whatever season of life and space of life God has us, we labor to affirm and extend his rule to make his glory known. So if I'm single, I live to affirm and extend the rule of God in that context. If I'm married, I live to affirm and extend the rule of God in that context. If I'm working as a physical therapist, I live to affirm and extend the rule of God in that context. If if I'm working as an electrician, I live to work and extend and affirm God's rule in that context. As an aspect of my identity, I have responsibility. I have been commissioned to labor and strive to extend God's rule and reign in whatever context he has me, to make his glory known. You're cared for, you are crowned, you are commissioned. And so as you look to the heavens, you know this is who you were created to be and called to be. As David concludes this psalm, he turns from man to again focus on his God, repeating verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm concludes with a triumphant tone in the same way it began, similar to a wedding ceremony. It begins and ends in a celebratory note. To know who you are, you begin by looking up, And to know who you are, you end by looking up. This is our concluding point. Who you are begins with God and ends with God. David begins and ends with this triumphant tone. It's almost like he is unaware of how hard life is. Or how sinful man is. Or that people around us, good friends, members of our family, maybe even ourselves, we're experiencing things like disability and disease and death and the effects of sin. And that left to ourselves, rather than live the way God intended, we reject it. We don't care for the earth as we should. We destroy it. We don't wear robes of royalty. We wear autonomy and rebellion. And when we're confronted with sin, we wear things like shame and guilt. In, in the New Testament, some thousand years later, the writer of Hebrews picks up this very issue in chapter 2. He, he quotes Psalm 8 and makes some observations. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So he quotes Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. The writer is saying, even, even though, even though he, God left nothing outside the control of man, it, it doesn't seem like creation is subject to man. It, it seems like things are out of control. 
It, it seems like things are disordered. If the destiny of man is to have everything in order, that's not what we seem to be experiencing. At present, we do not yet see that. But we also see, as the writer continues, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Psalm 8 is a text about human beings. It refers to you and I, but there is a fuller meaning to this passage taken up by Jesus who repeatedly called himself the Son of Man. Like I said earlier, earlier we said, know who, knowing who you are begins with God. Knowing who you are also ends with God. Knowing he has redeemed your faults and failures, knowing how you have run from and rebelled against your God-given identity, yet there was one man who did not. By his life and by his death, you can experience who you are truly destined to be. Listen to Pastor John Piper comment on this passage in Hebrews. The psalm, Psalm 8, is about humanity destined to rule under God over creation as deputies in the image of God. And sin came into the world and devastated that purpose. And therefore, as you look around, we do not yet see things subjected to him. You, me, Christians. But what do we see now? The last decisive final word has come into the world as Man with a capital M, and he has taken all the disease, all this futility, all this war, and all this sin upon himself, and it crushed him to death. And death vomited him out to glory, and never again will he be subject to disease or death or futility or sin, so that in Christ, Psalm 8 now stands finished. It is complete. Some of you, you, you are defined by your sin. I'm an addict. I'm a failure. One friend said to me recently, when he looks in the mirror every morning, he thinks, I'm a scumbag. Your struggle with sin defeats you and defines you. Our Bible begins proclaiming, in the beginning, God. Our Bible ends with God redeeming his people. Sandwiched in between is the creation of man, the fall of man, and the redemption of man. The story, it begins and ends with God. So to know who you are, Christian, know you are not defined by past sin. You are not defined by the futility of life we experience today. You begin by looking to the heavens and you end by looking to the heavens. For you know, you know that in Christ you have been cared for because he died in your place. You know that in Christ you have been crowned with his righteousness. And you know that in Christ you have been commissioned 
to go make disciples of him. You are not defined by past sin. You are defined by him. This is who you are. Too many of us, in answering the question, who are you? What do you believe about yourself? We navel gaze. We compare ourselves to others. We look down in self-pity. Shame leads to to doubts. Psalm 8 is teaching us we're looking in the wrong direction. To understand how to answer the question, who are you? What What do you believe about yourself? Look up. Rejoice. Experience identity in your triumphant God. Embrace who God has made you to be and saved you to be. You are cared for, you are crowned, and you are commissioned. This is who you are. 